0: Manx Radio Podcasts powered by Shore.
1: Manx Radio.
2: Sponsoring Women Today, citywing.com for business or
3: leisure flights. You are listening to Women Today. It's just coming up to 25 minutes past 2.
4: Uh, well, I met with a lovely Sam Shakespeare, uh, who is psychotherapist and has a degree in occupational therapy and a master's degree in cognitive behavioural therapy, or CBT. Uh, we had a long chat about anxiety, and in the interview, she refers to an organisation called NICE, which, for clarification, is the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, and they provide national guidance and advice to improve health and social care. I started the interview by asking her what triggers anxiety. It's it's a difficult one really, but um,
5: I would say my experience as a therapist, um, it tends to be two things. So one can be quite a pivotal event in someone's life and it doesn't necessarily have to be in their childhood. For instance, um, it could be a car crash, it could be a broken relationship, it could be an abuse situation where someone is uh, neglected or verbally abused. So you can start to work through how you deal with that situation there and then and you develop develop a coping strategy. But it can also be something that has happened in childhood. And And again, it doesn't have to be something that is huge and massive, you know, like a big, big situation. It can be something quite neutral that somebody has appraised in a certain way. So it's not necessarily the event itself, it's how they appraise it, it's the meaning that they attach to it. And also the way that they change their behavior as a result of it. So if you put all of those three things together, you've got your thinking, you've got your emotional side, which can affect your mood, and you've got your behavioral side as well. So if you put all of those together, that in essence is what
4: anxiety is. But so it sounds like that we're all vulnerable and we could all suffer from a bout of anxiety throughout our lives. Is there anything that we could do to prevent it? Preventing anxiety is not possible. Because it's part of a primitive
5: response system, you cannot stop being anxious. You've got to have it there. It's like your alarm system, so you've got to have it. The the best way to deal with it is to learn how to manage it in a more helpful way. So it's not that you can stop it, it's that when you get it, you can train yourself to manage it in a more helpful way.
4: Okay, so we now have an understanding a bit more of what anxiety is, what some of the triggers um, may be or may have been, so how can it be treated?
5: Okay, so we've got, uh, as well as going through your GP uh, and seeking private practitioners, you can also discuss medication with your GP, although NICE would recommend that you have a talking therapy before you go for um, a medication sort of response to it. Your typical talking therapies are CBT, counselling, mindfulness. You can uh, go for group therapy, art therapy. But also self-help books can be useful for some people. Again, it's finding the right medium for the individual. I don't mean medium in a ghostly way. Um, There are online websites, so Mood Juice is a good one. Also mind.org. They're a big organisation in the UK. They have a wealth of information on anxiety and different um, groups that you can subscribe to so um, forums self-help groups that people can join up and discuss anxiety my only word of caution with that given my experience of speaking with a couple of clients is that sometimes in some of these groups people will talk about their anxiety but not how they're moving away from it or dealing with it in a helpful way. It's almost like a self-fulfilling thing, it just goes round and round and round. So there's just a word of caution with online forums where people sort of almost gravitate and then discuss how awful things are, not what can we do about this, what do we need to do about this to stop feeling so awful. So that's my word of caution. Cognitive behavioural therapy is essentially looking at how you think and feel and how you behave because I think we'd say it's accepted that how you think and feel can affect how you behave, and how you behave can affect how you think and feel. So it's kind of a very cyclic process. So in CBT, we're looking at your thinking. We're looking at your beliefs. We're looking at your values. We're looking at your morals. We're looking at your thoughts. So it's everything to do with how you process information. That's the cognitive bit. Uh, The behavioural bit... Um, is is your responses it's the things that you do it's the way that you act it's the things that you say. so in anxiety, if you feel like on a scale of one to ten, ten being the worst anxiety ever. so if you see a spider on the floor and you feel like anxious to a level of ten and you start to think I can't cope it's gonna it's going to do something to me and you try and run out of the nearest door, which is probably shut, and then you start wrangling with the door handle. That's probably not helpful. So in CBT, what we would get you to do is perhaps work on downgrading your sensitivity to it. But we'd also have to get, again, I've talked about this appraising of a situation, appraising uh, of an event. It's how you're thinking about it. It's the meaning that you attach to it. So we'd start to sort of like, if you imagine a detective investigating all these different things. And then look at more helpful ways that you can deal with the situations. I would say that a lot of people come in to see me. And they'll talk about things that actually cannot be changed. You know, it's the thing that isn't pleasant and literally the thing cannot be changed. So what we need to do is look at the strategies to deal with the situation, to find more helpful strategies that will work longer term rather than the immediate I do this thing, I get away and the anxiety drops down really quickly. It's all about
4: long term strategies. If someone is listening to this and they think they might be suffering from anxiety themselves or they might know someone um, who is, what would you say to them? The first thing I would say to anyone is find somebody
5: that you trust. Find a friend, a friend that's really helpful and sit down and talk it through with them. Because sometimes you don't need to go all the way down the line to go and see your GP and, and have your... Uh, your worries and concerns, pathologized you can sit down with someone and just check what you're you know what you're going through because a lot of the time when people experience anxiety they think that if they say it out loud somebody will think they're stupid so they, they hold on to it and they don't talk about it and the one thing I want people to take from it is don't hold things in talk and share that's why we have talking therapy so people can express if that doesn't help do go and see your, your GP, your doctor, and ask them to refer you on. You can go through the community mental health team um, and you can ask the doctor to refer you to that team, and then they will grade your, your um, problem and they will sort of pass you on to the appropriate team. So there's a low intensity therapy team, there, there's me who's a CBT therapist, there are clinical psychologists, there are practitioner psychologists. Um, There's a whole ream of people, there are mental health nurses and all of those people have expertise and lots of them have um, expertise in CBT, it's a nice recommended uh, therapy for depression and anxiety because it has the biggest uh, base of evidence to support its use and its usefulness.
3: We are speaking to an award-winning innovator of the online gaming industry. In fact, she's a bona fide star of the future. I love that title. (laughs) Lydia Bavara. thank you for taking time to join us today. You are a star of the future. That's a pretty cool title to have. I was really flattered to get that award, actually. Um,
4: Thank
6: you for having me today. I'm really looking forward to today's segment. To start with, I have to ask you, gaming industry then, not just for guys, clearly. Clearly, if I'm in it. Um, Also, one would imagine that quite a large Part of our um, user base is also female, considering that we're, we're half of the world's population. So yes, um, gaming is a technology field, and so it is naturally a bit male-dominated, but that, that is getting better year after year. And what do you think that women bring to the industry? I think that women bring all sorts of things to the industry. We are... Um, goodness. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to say sometimes, because women have a lot... Um, to bring to all sorts of industries we are just as smart as men we're just as capable as men um, and I think that what we can bring is a unique perspective at times.
3: Yes absolutely I think you're absolutely right there now people will notice that's not a Manx accent There, <laughs> where are you from originally Lydia?
6: Oh I'm I'm from the States originally although I have lived here for the past seven years. And what brought you over here? Uh, the job. I was recruited by Microgaming um, to come and work here in in the poker part of the industry specifically. And before that, I was actually living in Malta for four years. So I've been away from the States for a good long time. And you've actually traveled a lot, haven't you? We,
3: we ask all of our guests to send us a sort of bit of background
6: about themselves,
3: like a, a biography, sort of potted biography. And I love that there's a couple of lines in there that I really like. One in particular, you say, living abroad has shaped who I am. In what way has it
6: shaped you, do you think? I think that if I was still living in the States, if I was still living in, in Atlanta, Georgia, I would be possibly a different sort of person. I, When I was looking at moving into poker and moving into the gaming industry, I basically had, had two options. I was going to either move into real estate, and this was right before the real estate crash, so I'm really glad I didn't, or I could have <laughs> moved abroad and joined the poker industry. And I'm really, really glad that I did. I feel that um, working in an industry that's as multicultural as mine has made me understand a little bit more and be a bit more understanding of how people in different cultures work and how they interact and communicate with one another. And um, it's definitely opened my mind to new experiences and, and broadened my horizons.
3: So how did you get interested in poker, though? Because it's, again, you know, I I don't like sort of separating men and women because I think that almost goes against the whole idea of equality. But at the same time, it's not seen as being a
6: very female pursuit. It's not, which is really a shame because it's it's one of those sports in which women can absolutely compete on equal footing with men. And um, and yet sometimes women are a little bit slower to, to, to join the game.
3: But there are obviously there are clearly risks, risks involved as well, because as soon as you add that sort of monetary aspect to it, yes, you can win. You can also
6: lose and you can lose quite a lot, obviously. But so how how do you manage those risks? Um, so I managed it through really careful bankroll management. So I would have, it's, it's so boring. I would play (laughs) eight hours a day and I would have a spreadsheet and I'd have my starting balance and my ending balance. And I would, I would, um, keep record through those sort of database tracking software. I'd keep record of all of the hands played and I'd review everything after all the sessions to see where I would make mistakes. And, and I'd go back and I'd try to correct those mistakes. And it's, it's like any sort of field, uh, you require constant learning and constant vigilance. I think that, um, the poker world then it was a lot easier to be slightly better than average and make a living out of it. Um, Right now the game has gotten a lot harder for a lot of different reasons. I think that anyone starting out in poker right now can expect to lose money for a long time before they they're good enough before they're experienced enough to start making money at it
3: tell us about the women
6: in gaming awards what is that all about um so the women in gaming awards it's something that's held in the gaming industry it's an annual award series um i won an award this past year for innovator of the year and and the year before that as as star of the future and it's something that's that's very specific to the to the online gaming industry it is international it was quite an honor to take home an award this year and last year Uh, and it's 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 something where you know we were talking about this a little bit before the show I'm a little bit conflicted when it comes to women only events um, because I I wish that they weren't necessary mm-hmm. and I feel that sometimes part of me feels that maybe they're not necessary and that women should not be singled out as being worthy of a particular award or things like that but at the same time I feel like if if it accomplishes something, if it accomplishes that women are recognized for their achievements, um, then it's worthwhile. Although there, there is something about it that, that really makes me wish that it wasn't. So um, to use an example, I um, I believe I got the award this year because a, a patent that I applied for was granted. Um, and it's it's for something poker related. It's it's, it's complicated and financial. And it was um, something that was a lot of fun to work on. But um, but I've since found out that only five point five percent of commercialized patents are issued to women. Wow. And this is one area in which women could could step up. Um, and there's no reason why women shouldn't be putting forth their ideas as patents and then making money on them. And it's 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 one of those areas in which I really hope that that being able to talk about this and having innovator of the Year awards through even just women type, award series um, would hope to highlight this because it's a discrepancy that we can we can fix
3: and is that do you mean patents with regards to any kind of industry and genre is that just all patents there's only that that so do you mean in the gaming industry no no
6: generally generally it's it's commercialized patents so it's patents that people are actually you know have taken to market and are making money on it's only 5.5 percent we need to have some ideas. Nicola. I need to get
3: creative. Yeah. yeah, I think I think we can do that. Now, coming back to poker, I should say we have had a text message in. I, I, I thought we may actually. Uh, I'm just going to read it to you here. Uh, it came in before because we were talking about poker. Now, Malcolm says poker's not a sport. He says it's gambling and people have become destitute because of this. And, you know, the Isle of Man has become um, somewhat of a, a big name in the world of online gaming. And I'm sure it, you've had
6: some sort of negative comments in the past about it. And I wonder how you deal with that. So we have, and yes, people have become destitute. People have become destitute by setting up their own businesses or trading stocks on the stock market. Um, A lot of the things that we do in our day-to-day lives can be considered gambling. Um, I think that poker is is difficult because um, we are, perhaps as a marketing thing, but we talk about poker as something where you can make money at it but you make money at it through a lot of hard work and study and diligence and careful bankroll management. And um, it's not necessarily something where I'd encourage someone to start playing professionally immediately, um, or even, even after a long period. It's something that really requires a lot of thought. And um, I, I think that it's... A lot of people are, are negative with poker because it is seen as a form of gambling. I, I strongly believe that it's actually a sport and that, that it is a skill game. And I think that we can see that because we see the same people winning over and over again. And if it was something that was pure gambling, then we wouldn't see that. But we see the same top players around the world all the time. And that, that just goes to show to me that it is a skill game and it is a sport. So is it, is it
3: still the same as it was though, traditionally? Does it still have those same sort of as a card game played around a table when you take it into the
6: online world? Is it the same thing? Yes, and that's super interesting because it doesn't have to be. So what we have done with online poker is we've taken, we've taken a card game and basically moved it online, and graphically it's the same. Um, I think that there have been a number of innovations over the years that have moved away from the offline... Um, a portrayal of it. Things like like Rush Poker which was introduced by Full Tilt which is something that you can't play live. Now anyone who's listening to this and, and knows a little bit about online poker will be following and I'm sorry if, if anyone else is a bit lost in this. It's a type of poker that basically can only be played online. Okay. Um, there are also certain things like Blazing Cannon which we at Microgaming have released that, that could not be done live and I think that over time the game of poker online is going to evolve to look less and less like the game that some of us grew up playing around a kitchen card table.
3: Now our studio guests today are from the charity Pause for Therapy. We have Mary Sims with us and her husband Ian. Thank you very much for joining us today. We also, as you might have heard, some sort of rustling in the background, we have Danny the dog with us. (laughs) Beautiful Danny too, who is one of the Pause for Therapy dogs. Uh, We'll be finding out a little bit more about what Danny does with Pause for Therapy and uh, finding more about the charity in general a little bit later on, which does of course, as you might have guessed, the charity revolves around the benefits of being around animals. Now Mary, you had an experience of the benefits of animals didn't you from a very very young age you were telling us in your your bio about when you were first going to school
1: absolutely yes uh i was bought my first ever dog for my fifth birthday a little cocker spaniel called Snooky, and she was just adorable um and i was five in the august and started school a couple of weeks after in early september and um I was petrified. (laughs) I really did not want to go. And I remember uh, my mum and dad driving me to school um, and Snooky was only a tiny little puppy, sat on my dad's knee and obviously that completely distracted me. Um, And I was oblivious to the fact of where we were going really. Um, Potted into school. Obviously she was too young to go on the ground at that stage. She hadn't had all the jabs but my dad carried her in his arms. Um, And I walked along quite happily. Um, I think dad actually took her into school with me um Aww. and then settled me down and i stayed there quite happily for the rest of the day so yeah that's basically what we're about as a charity um using the dogs for want of a better expression um as a distraction as a therapy um because you know a lot of people a, a, a huge amount of people are animal lovers um and you know if we if we've suitable animals to be able to share then it's a privilege to be able to take them to people who aren't in such a fortunate position there is just something about animals, isn't there, being around them, especially dogs. I don't know, there's
3: just something... Would you say there is something about dogs in particular that they have that sort of calming effect on, on people?
1: I think whatever your your bag is for animals, some people are dogs, some people are cats, some people are gerbils, rabbits, whatever. We only at the moment take dogs because that's what we're set up to do. Uh-huh. Um, whatever animal it is, it is clinically proven that they do reduce blood pressure. They help to divert negative thoughts um, And as I say, they're as much as anything a distraction or a reminder to people, you know, a lot of the places we go are nursing homes where people obviously are no longer able to have their own animals, but have had in um, previous years. And often we'll find people in floods of tears, but they're actually happy tears because they'll spend half an hour reminiscing to us about their dogs, cats, whatever it will be, um, and they'll just be sat there stroking the dog. Um, telling us all the animals that they've had over the years, telling us their names, the little anecdotal stories and all this sort of thing. Um, And it's just a bit of normality that comes in to see them on a regular basis every couple of weeks or so. Um, And it just helps to break, you know, one day from another for them.
3: And for the dogs, I suppose, a human is a human is a human. And so they don't, do they, do they pretty much sort of react in a similar way with whoever they meet? They, they're obviously trained, aren't they? Or you know that they're going to be dogs that are appropriate to be in that
1: situation. Yeah, absolutely. There is no specific training. The only requirement we have is that um, they must have been owned by, for at least six months by the people who are taking them in. And that's really so that the, the owner um, knows how the dog's likely to behave. The dogs are assessed by ourselves um, uh, to make sure they are of suitable temperament and attitude. They need to be sociable, obviously, because they're approaching complete strangers. Uh, They have to be fairly, you know, just well-rounded dogs that will not get phased by any given situation, whether it's screaming children or a fire alarm going off or a rattling Zimmer frame or whatever it is. Uh, The dogs just need to be able to take it all in their stride not bat an eyelid at it we do do um, within the assessment um, tests just to make sure that they aren't going to be react too reactive to loud noises and stuff like that Um, but yeah we just really look for dogs that are sociable happy to be around anybody Um, obviously they're not too boisterous we don't want them jumping up all over people because particularly elderly they're very fragile they have very Mm -hmm. delicate skin Um, but the dogs just want to go and say hello to everybody and um, you know it's It's just a privilege to be able to share them with people. And the dogs just love it because often they'll get given little treats, of course. (laughs) People are often sat drinking coffee or tea and having a little biscuit. And the dogs just love to have a little bit of biscuit given to them, which is actually another part of the assessment that we do to make sure they will take a treat gently. And we're not going to find somebody with... They started with five fingers and they've now got four. Probably the most common question we are asked is, which is the best breed of dog for pause for therapy? And the answer to that is there is no right or wrong breed. It's purely down to the attitude and the temperament of the dog. You can get good collies and bad collies, good spaniels, bad spaniels, good rotties, bad rotties, good stuffies, bad bad, bad stuffies. You know, obviously the dog um, and the temperament of the dog is paramount. But the 99%, 99.9% of the bad press is down, I suspect, to the circumstances and the lack of responsibility of the owners which is just so unfair it's a bit like when owners don't pick up after their dogs we all get tarnished with the same brush Mm -hmm. and nobody wants to stand in dog muck and if you're not prepared to pick up then don't have a dog that's all there is to it and you've brought in some kit with you now tell us what this kit is that's right yes it's oxygen um masks for animals um not just dogs not just cats it It can cater for gerbils, guinea pigs, um, budgerigars, any number of animals. Um, The primary thing that we were looking for was to cover animals that have been uh, caught in a a house fire. And uh, once they've been recovered by the fire service, they're overcome by the effects of smoke. They have smoke inhalation. um, And apparently what will often happen is that because the fire service aren't kitted out with these shapes of masks, they only have... um, masks suitable for human faces which are quite flat so they aren't very effective on the animals and a lot of the oxygen will just escape rather than actually get them into the animals lungs Um, these masks are cone shaped there's three different sizes and it means that emergency first aid oxygen can be administered to these animals um, and very likely they will be revived um, and then obviously they can be Taken to a vets or whatever needs to happen to them, but it's that initial emergency first aid that is the critical lifesaver. To be in a situation where you've got a house fire, you've potentially lost or had damaged your home, to then find that your animals are brought out by the fire service, um, they they're still alive but they're un, you know they're unconscious because they've had so much smoke intake, uh, and then they they go and die in front of you. It would just be beyond comprehension, you know. I mean, the trauma of a house fire we can speak from personal experience is not fun it's it's a it's not a nice place to be um, but the prospect of then losing your animals is just beyond comprehension 46% of households in the UK own pets I suspect it's far more than that on the island I bet it's well over half of the do you, households. Think, do you
3: think we are a nation of animals? oh
1: absolutely no question about it yeah um, and to be honest the response we've had we only launched this uh, last a week last Saturday so just over a week and the response has been phenomenal
3: you have Dr John with us and also his son Oliver who's also training to be a GP. And we're talking about those sort of old-fashioned illnesses like the likes of, you know, scarlatina or smallpox, that kind of thing that maybe people think, oh, surely they're not around anymore. But when you have kids, these things do kind of crop up, don't they? Okay, here's one for you. Smallpox. Is that the same thing as either measles or chickenpox or is that something entirely different? No, smallpox
7: is a much, much more serious illness and that is now eradicated. We don't see smallpox anymore. There are viruses in a laboratory uh, somewhere, but we don't want to let them out. Uh, So no, smallpox is, is generally not not around at all anymore thank goodness. Um, There are other conditions like sort of polio uh, mumps and measles which all mums will have heard of uh, and dads as well I hope, um, which are rarer but actually still around and those are the ones that we vaccinate for so when your, your baby is very small we give them a tiny dose of either the dead virus or an attenuated, in other words a harmless virus, in order to promote your immune system to fight against it should it actually hit you. So that's why the vast majority of the population is now free because of course very few people are getting it. The problem is that of course we've had a little bit of a um, a hiccup in the last few years because of the MMR scare Mm -hmm. and uh, um, so MMR is measles, mumps and rubella, uh, German measles and so um, there have been some increased instances of that because a lot of uh, parents have become quite scared about actually giving the vaccine.
3: Wow, well, and, and I suppose you're you going to have obvious thoughts on this, is that obviously the, the children should have this vaccine. But it's interesting that we were talking before about how something like this can become such a scare. And it, it does seem like it's the media sort of taking this and potentially blowing out of proportion i don't know but at the same time when it's your children you are going to be concerned about anything you hear aren't you because you just want to do the best for
8: the child at the end of the day yeah
7: absolutely ollie and i were talking about this earlier on you, you've done some research i think haven't you? yeah so
8: i mean one of the main reasons that certainly the mmr vaccine was kind of so controversial uh back in well it started in 1998 uh, this chap doctor called andrew wakefield did a piece of research which was published and then the media got hold of this which tried to or claim to link uh, the MMR vaccine to autism, Mm -hmm. um, which is completely rubbish, uh, has since been uh, completely kind of, uh, yeah said that it is rubbish uh, and uh, that it was a massive mistake. The guy has since been struck off and is no longer allowed to practice medicine, not only because the research itself was uh, very poor and uh, caused such a scare, but also there was a conflict of interest and he was paid something like 450 grand from some company, uh, drug company, uh, to do with it all. And so, uh, but as, as, as Dad said earlier, it was it did have a big effect on things like measles and mumps coming back uh, a few years later as lots of mums chose not to vaccinate their children Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously our advice now and anywhere that you read online uh, with good research will tell you that that is the right thing to do, do vaccinate and there is no link
3: yeah okay so we were talking just before about smallpox um, and chickenpox and there is such a thing i believe Nicola. you brought this up of pox parties
4: well yeah i've got two questions actually with uh, because chickenpox is um and any mum or dad listening to this who's got small children probably aware that there's i think there's some chickenpox doing the rounds on the isle of man at the moment um pox parties used to be popular i don't know if they still are so my first question is um do you think pox parties are a good idea my second question is i don't know if you've seen it on social media but there is an awful picture of a child who had chicken pox who was given ibuprofen and that has led to some Um, awful effects left on the skin Um, and so it's out there on social media that if you have a child who's got chicken pox whatever you do don't give them ibuprofen if they've got a temperature.
7: Okay Um, first one uh, pox parties still happen they're not talked about a great deal what's even more interesting is that there is some um, talk on the media in America about uh, children being sent ice lollies with the virus in it no way. by post and you can actually order them on the internet what? in order to, to, to deliberately infect your child. And with that the reason, Well the reason behind this is that the vast majority of children who get chickenpox very early on the, on in their life get a few spots, feel a bit coldy get better. So the thought is why don't we do that now while they're little and then they'll be okay. Because undoubtedly if you get chickenpox when you're an adult it's bad news it's yeah. horrid you know you have a really nasty rash very often you feel ghastly for a couple of weeks um, and you can have more complications particularly chest infections the problem is and what people don't realise is that although Most young children are fine and only have a minor illness. It is still pretty dangerous. You know, chickenpox can make you feel very unwell. You can be hospitalised. There is this condition called encephalitis, where you can actually get a brain disease as a result of chickenpox. It is rare, but you can get it. More commonly, you can get a nasty chest infection afterwards, which will be quite difficult to eradicate. So some children are hospitalised and some children die. You know, it is possible there have been deaths every year to do with chickenpox. So it's not a risk that I would consider worth taking when you've got, um, you know, good treatments. um, And uh, so, no, please don't spread chickenpox around. As far as ibuprofen is concerned, um, it's one of those uh, stories that get out on the media that gets blown up we are not advised to use ibuprofen and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like naproxen or diclofenac all of those sort of things uh in um people with with chicken fox there there are very unusual cases of people being very ill particularly as you've said with um, rashes that that get very much worse Um, but it's very very rare Mm -hmm. so it's not something we would call a complete contraindication Uh, in other words you can give it but you have to be you have to recognize that it's a risk and keep a very close eye i wouldn't choose to there are other painkillers around
3: so if we want to find out more information about all of these things is it best to just go to the nhs website or
7: nhs choices is probably the best website it's actually got a very good section both on the illness is concerned and what you can expect to see if your child has measles, mumps, rubella or any of those sort of things. Because a lot
3: of them involve rashes and skin A conditions, lot of them do, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
7: Um, my, my general point with rashes incidentally is the rash itself is probably less important than how your child is. If I see a child at meds or in, in my surgery, I'm generally less interested in looking at the rash and more interested in looking at the child. Have they got a high temperature? Have they been off their food? Are they vomiting? Do they have a nasty cough? Any of those things are probably more important than the rash. But go to NHS Choice It's really good website to look at both the illnesses, but also the vaccinations and the relative risks and benefits. Basic bottom line is they're incredibly powerful and they work really well and they don't make your child ill. They give him a sore arm for a few days. Please have them.
2: I put a nickel in the telephone, tell
5: my baby's not.
0: to ask me to to inspect these phones that were bought online now, there was over 50 of them and they were bought um at various different auction sites etc and they all came through they were bought randomly and when I went through them, I was shocked at some of the things we found. I'll give you an, exa- an example, Christy, of, of some of the things that I came across. Two-thirds of them were falsely advertised. They weren't what they said they were. And on a couple of occasions, there were actually old model phones that had been put into newer versions, cases. I mean, that's blatant, um, blatantly you know, bad, isn't it? Um, over a third of them were broken, uh, including things like the cameras not working or the camera lenses being cracked or the buttons not working, et cetera. Ten percent of them wouldn't charge. A couple of them arrived and the photos in the advert look quite good, but they only showed you one photo from the front. And when they arrived, they didn't even have a back on them. Um, Half of them, I mean, they were far too badly battered to be resold. uh, And three quarters of them were, were no good. I mean, you would be very, very unhappy with them.
3: Oh, my word. That's shocking. And if you do get one of these phones that is in such a bad condition and not as advertised, what happens? Can you actually send it
0: back or are you done for? Well, that depends where you bought it from. Now, a couple of auction sites will give a buyer protection if you do your homework correctly. If you make sure that who you're buying from is is someone who's is a protected seller, um, if if it's been falsely advertised, or anything else, they they will then go after the person and ask for a refund and, on your behalf. But what a lot of people don't realise is there's quite a few well-known auction sites out there. that The way they operate is they put a seller and a buyer together, and that's it. There is zero comeback. And on those occasions, we've actually heard about people buying a phone. The seller, once they've received the money, shuts their advert down, disappears. They don't even send anything through. You've totally lost everything, and you've got no recourse when that happens at all. So it is a case of, I would say to people, I have this saying, you know, if you smell a rat, you're probably dealing with one. Use your common sense. If something's not quite right... If you're still interested in the phone, I wouldn't say necessarily dismiss it immediately, but if something's not quite right, just be more, show more due diligence. Try and meet the seller, try and inspect the phone, try and make sure it's working, or if you can't see them, try and get a photograph of the phone from every angle, not just the front or the back. Um, Try and get a name and address um, and a contact number for the person who's selling it and see if they give you any sort of warranty on it. If not, then you need to be really, really cautious. I suppose the ideal answer here, Christy, is if you can afford it, buy a second hand phone from a high street retailer one that's been checked comes with a warranty and you've got some sort of guarantee um the, the shop are who they say they are and the phone's been checked and it's not stolen or not fake
3: i guess that's the thing isn't it but what sort of price difference then are you looking at in between going to a high street retailer and getting one
0: of these online well the funny thing is one of the phones that um, we got off the website it was a it was a used phone it came through and it was 269 pounds so it wasn't cheap and you think if you're paying a lot of money, well, it must be a fairly good, fairly modern phone. It came through, it wasn't. It was broken. It, it had all sorts of issues with it. And it makes you realise that the price doesn't necessarily mean you're getting a good phone. Now, obviously, the cheaper it's going to be, it's probably the, there's probably more chance of things not working on it, but it still ideally needs to be advertised. I mean, people don't mind buying something cheap if it says no charger, no battery, or camera doesn't work. At least you're not being missold something. The problem here is people are advertising them, they're getting as much money as they can, and three quarters of what arrives are not what people wanted.
3: Now, what about if we are looking at these uh, auction sites online? There are some of them, aren't there, where they do have feedback from previous buyers who can rate the seller. I mean, is it even worth looking at those? Could that be faked?
0: Well, it's not so much fate. I mean, it depends on how, how many you know people they've got reporting on their feedback. If it's one or two, then it's probably their mum and their brother. But if you get somebody who, who goes on one of these sites and they they buy and sell things regularly and they've got you know a very good percentage, lots and lots of people have recommended them, and quite often some of the websites will will protect the seller and say you know this person you know is who they say they are, then you're fairly okay. You should you should have some sort of recall if something goes wrong. If there's other sites out there, obviously I can't mention names, Chrissy, but you know we, we've all heard of other sites. And um, if you go on there, there's no sort of feedback, no guarantee, no recall. Then it is buyer beware. And you know, call it this study, and and, uh, and what I found is most of the time, the majority of the time, you know, what you're getting is you're not, you're going to be unhappy with.
3: And you know, judging by this, it's I think it's 73 percent of us are actually doing this. So so why are we going? Is it is it just to save money?
0: Quite often. I mean, this there's a thing which I say, you know, and greed conquers brains. And that happens in everything I've ever done, in, in all the consumer programs I've done. You say to people, why on earth did you do that? And they say, well, it just seems so cheap, I thought it was a bargain. You know? And it, greed does conquer brains. If we think we're getting something that's so, so cheap. Come on, guys, wake up and smell the roses. You know? It's cheap for a reason. It doesn't exist. You're going to get your fingers burnt. Something's going to go wrong. You know? But again, you know, it might not be cheap. You know? So you've you just got to be very, very careful.
3: And it's so typical because I have literally just a few days ago bought one of these phones from an online site. So I'm really intrigued now to know what I'm going to get turning up. I have a feeling I'm going to be probably kicking myself and then going to a a proper retailer instead Mm. after what you've said.
0: (laughs) I'm gathering by that. It hasn't arrived yet.
3: Uh, not yet
0: (laughs) Okay. did you check the person that was selling it to you
3: well I did I went for one of those ones that was more of a a sort of shop fronted uh, seller rather than just an individual and it did have lots of good feedback
0: so I'm really hoping it's okay (laughs) well I'll keep my fingers crossed for you Yeah, but at least you have done something fairly sensible I mean I would always say to people if you can afford it buy from a high street retailer for obvious reasons if you can't Well, there's a few things to watch out for. I mean, some people advertise a phone and they show you a stock photo. You know, one which they pulled off the internet. Here's my phone. You know, this is the one I'm selling. Hang on. You know, straight away, you know, wake up and smell the roses. Why they are showing you a stock photo? Make sure people are showing you the actual phone, every single angle, not just the front or the back, and not just a distance shot of them using it 400 metres away. You know, make sure you get a good picture of it. Do your checks on the seller. Or, if you can afford it, Go and get one from uh, from a, a reliable source, one where you've got to come back and a warranty on it as well.
3: It does make you wonder how many people are actually buying new phones now because I suppose they do sort of go out of fashion or out of style or out of tech quite quickly now, don't they?
0: Well, that's exactly why O2 are doing this thing called Light New. What they're doing is they're selling three classes of phones. You get the first class, which is Perfect. Now, they're phones that have been returned to them. What they do is they check them out, they wipe all the data, but they're never more than 14 days old, and you're buying them at a discounted price. Pretty good. Then they do one called Almost Perfect, which is up to three months old. They might have up to five small marks on them, but everything's checked, everything's working, and they've got a guarantee. And then they do one called uh, called Perfectly Fine, which is any age phone... But it's checked, it's made sure it's working, it's made sure the data's cleared off it. And these are very cheap phones, and the reason they're doing those, and this is something which a lot of people need, you've probably heard stories where people are in a contract, quite often two-year contracts now, which I hate with a vengeance, but they lose or they break their phone and they're stuck in that contract and they need to get a cheap phone just to see them to the end of it. And these are perfect for that. So, you know, that's what I would recommend.
3: And, of course, there's the whole new... Pokemon Go craze taking the world by storm and is people are actually embracing it now as a, a very very positive thing I mean there's a, a thing in the, a, a rehabilitation centre in Florida they're using the app to help work on movement standing balance and tolerance hand eye coordination problem solving impulse control and fine motor skills uh, they say it encourages interactions with other, others which can be highly motivating to patients doctors have seen a marked improvement in the excitement level of the patients playing the game they now want to go to rehab sessions uh, because they want to play Pokemon and they're seen walking down the halls with their therapist laughing and shouting I got one <laughs> which I think is just brilliant uh, and then they're motivated to walk further down the hallway to see if they can find where the next Pokemon is hiding. I just think that's brilliant and there's loads of stories about Pokemon Go being beneficial in all kinds of ways, socialising um, fighting anxiety, depression too. Um, Lydia what do you make of all of this? The idea of, kind of embracing video games and using them in either a sort of way to encourage uh, or motivate people to get outside or to to, you know, sort of develop brain power, whatever, whatever in those respects.
6: So I think that there are a lot of different layers to this, especially Pokemon Go that are really, really interesting. So um, there, there's something really cool about Pokemon Go that you haven't mentioned, which is how businesses are using it to attract new customs. So there are local businesses in the UK and in the US that are setting themselves up to be Pokestops where people will come in looking for the resources they need to play Pokemon Go and will stop and buy a coffee or they'll buy a cupcake or something like that. It's turning out to be fantastic for local businesses who embrace the technology and who embrace the games Um, I think that also Pokemon Go is the first example that we've seen of augmented reality hitting the masses Mm -hmm. and I think that augmented reality is just such a fascinating field and I think that this is starting to show just a little bit of the potential now I haven't I have to admit, I haven't played Pokemon Go myself. I am—I'm one of the 100 million people who's downloaded the app, and I'm really looking forward to some spare time to go and 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 hunt through the streets of Douglas for a Pokemon. But um, but I haven't played it myself. But but I have been reading about it because it's so cool, and I'm so so interested in augmented reality and what it can do for us. And I think that as um as the technology progresses we're going to start seeing aug- augmented reality impacting our lives in really interesting and new ways and possibly ways that we haven't even considered yet so aside from gaming that part of it i think is is super interesting um i te- i tend to think that games are good for people i follow mm-hmm. i mean i i work in the gaming industry so, so obviously i will think that but but i think that games are a very very valid use of a person's spare time um i think that Um, Things like going outside or interacting with people or, um, or learning new skills and problem solving, these are really good for the brain. And I think that as we're seeing people move away, perhaps from television, which we know is not good for the brain, into things like this, which are immersive and interactive, um, and require just using a few more gray cells, I think that that's really good for the future and, and future generations.
3: And I suppose, as you say, as well, it's it's also getting people outside, which has got to be a good thing, hasn't it? I know that you know there's I think i was I was talking to someone recently about the the Pokemon on the island, and apparently there's loads of them around Tinwald, which is great, isn't it? Because if it gets you sort of going out to visit historical sites, or are people going to historical sites and not even looking up from their phones and so not learning anything anyway, I don't know. Nicola,
4: well, you've not played it yet. Either, have you? <laughs> You're talking about <laughs> Pokemon Go, and I've probably sat here with a very blank expression on my face. I've heard about it. I don't have the app. Um, I don't really understand what it's about. You're obviously looking for something. That that's fine. Um, um, but the more I hear about it, the more curious I find I'm getting, and I'm probably going to go home tonight and download the app. And yeah, you'll probably see me wandering around and bumping into lampposts and stuff like that while I'm looking for these. Is it? Am I looking for Pokemon? Is that what I'm looking for? I don't know. Anyway. Um, um yeah but i suppose people could get caught up in that i do uh, i do really appreciate um Lydia's um comments about how uh, all this gaming can actually come with benefits mm-hmm. um i think it's um video games um as they sort of came through the 80s and all the rest of it probably had a bit of bad press um or a bad association um but now they could be um, a really useful tool yeah um, would be a shame if people are sat with their heads in their phones, looking for Pokemon and not reading the plaque at the uh, historical site and learning something about that, but may I don't know, maybe gaming will somehow
6: incorporate the learning,
4: element, the of learning the element of the sites or something
6: who kn- who knows what's around the corner mm-hmm. well people are using games to teach things in all sorts of interesting ways so that sort of the brain building game industry is a multi-million dollar industry right now there's a massive company called lumosity in san francisco that basically builds games to help improve your memory and your problem solving skills and your spatial recognition and things like that and it's a really cool company it's run by a whole bunch of psychologists so they know what they're doing And then there are things like there are new games. There's one called Codemancer, which teaches kids how to code. So it's a it's a it's a game for basically toddlers that teaches them the very basic elements of software development. And I think using things like that are just fascinating. And when it comes to using games in schools, I think that that's it's a very natural evolution of our interaction with games. And I I think that it will help to shape the sorts of people that will need to lead us into the future, because I think that. Our, our children and our children's children's world is going to look very very different from ours totally and different. we need to prepare them for that as much as possible and I think that games are a great way to do that. Uh,
4: we're
3: also joined of course by Carly and Miles from Man Banham. How easy is it to set up a business on the Isle of Man Carly?
2: It's, it's really straightforward on the Isle of Man so you might see um, someone comes in with an idea and they go right I, I want to start this business so you chat through with them whether they want to start as a sole trader or as a partnership or a company mm-hmm. Um, so after they've decided that, you just usually go through the, you know, or someone, you have to sit down almost with a bit of piece of paper and a pen and think, right, what do I need? So you might need insurance, for example, to do whatever you want to do. Or you might need to be licensed by some format for doing that particular activity. And then you just need to chat through about where they're going to operate from. Um, has it got planning permission? Do you need a lease in place? So, so it's a, it sounds maybe a lot of things to think of, but it's a really easy process to go through um, and it's exciting times as well I think on the island with this new this fund and things in place so I think it's all good.
3: Do you think Miles that we, we are um, well placed because of course we have our own legislation and so many elements of, of business and sort of employment and that kind of thing as well do you think we're well placed to welcome new business over here? Yeah
9: definitely, the alabama has got such an opportunity now I mean the, mm. the, the idea of the scheme it's absolutely fabulous it's going to create so many jobs 'Cause basically the, the people coming over from the UK with existing businesses, they're going to create jobs. There'll be people out there now who in a few years' time will be working for the new businesses. You've got the existing people out here now who are in the Alamandia, they may want to have the opportunity to get going with a a small loan to, to open a, a, a shop or or a, a small business they want to actually get going. So they can get that small loan, which they may not be able to do for the banks. And get that business established again. It's a small business. It will grow. It will create jobs. The unique advantage we have on the Isle of Man, which we've all got to work on and, and assist. Well, the new government when it comes comes in, is remembering that on the Isle of Man we've got our own parliament. We can create our own laws. So that's our unique advantage. So we can look at matters and think right. What's best? What's good for the Isle of Man? Um, and if we can come up with ideas that work, that aren't controversial, that the UK can can live with then that's uh, the advantage we have and that attracts people in because we don't need to have the complications that they have in the UK or the extra laws because we're only a small population so we can create a business environment that's really really competitive and makes it worthwhile jumping on that plane or jumping on the boat and having that little short trip to the Isle of Man because when you get here you know it's going to be a place where you can do business.
3: But there is also quite a lot of sort of unknown at the moment, isn't there? Because, of course, there's, we're not entirely sure how, f- for instance, Brexit is going to affect us as an island. And, and also, it's going to be all change when this election happens in September. So many new members um, of the Keys and, and a brand new chief minister and everything as well. So is is now a good time to be looking to do this?
9: Definitely, definitely. Uh, it, it's opportunity. Brexit's an opportunity. You can, you've got to be either... Uh, You know, cup half empty, cup half full. I mean, it's basically it's positive. Every time there's a change, there's a a potential for an opportunity. So it's a big opportunity for the Allemans. The election's coming along. We've had a great team in the past. They've got us to the stage, you know, the economy's doing doing well for loads of years. So there's an opportunity for, for new people to come in. The younger generation have to have a go at some stage. And they can come in, um, they've, they've, seen, they've seen the leaders do it before so it can be pushed forward again and we can keep that growth going in the other and bring in new businesses.
10: Everyone's scared of something very different, whether it's something from people's childhood or something they grow to fear. Um, something psychological versus, you know, something organic like the fear of spiders or, like I said, psychological, where it's the, f- you know, the fear of having a loss of control. Uh, I think it's very different for everyone. A lot of fear is also based in a very fantastical realm as well. I think based on, on what we've seen from pop culture, you know, uh, Universal is the, the home of of horror. We the, the studio literally created the horror genre back in the 1920s with Frankenstein and Dracula and Wolfman. But even those characters characters were based on, on stories that existed, you know, far before those films existed. So I think from a pop culture standpoint, uh, stories have really driven fear and, and the types of characters that have been created. We, we, we play into that. We, we want to create and, and recreate a lot of these classic characters and a lot of contemporary things that are being offered uh, in film and TV today.
3: It's interesting, isn't it? Because quite often with um, things that scare us on TV, as you mentioned, it's what you don't see, isn't it? Because our imaginations
10: are pretty strong. Absolutely. You look at a film like... Uh, like Jaws, the original Jaws. That film was was completely about the idea of the shark, and you rarely saw it in that movie until until Act 3, you know, when, when the boat is getting attacked. And it was about that kind of visceral knowledge of what the shark could do, not necessarily what it was doing. And a lot of horror films play into that. Uh, you look at a, at a film that we're actually featuring this year in the event, uh, The Exorcist. It was considered in 73 the scariest film of all time. Primarily because it was the fear of the unknown, of the fear of possession, the idea that that innocence can be lost, which is is not a character. It's, it's a feeling. Um, it's a it's a motif. Uh, it's just remarkable what what storytelling is able to do and how it can affect the individual based on what it presents, but also what you're bringing to it when you do view it or read it.
3: And do you think, uh, with regards to the films that we watch and that scare us, have our tastes changed over the years? And are we are we actually more difficult to scare now? Um,
10: I think there's definitely been an evolution, but I do believe that horror it it comes in waves, and sometimes back to simpler tactics seem to be always the most effective. You look at, at at a film like Saw, which, you know, really changed the genre as far as what it was showing. But then you look at a film like, like The Exorcist or, or even The Conjuring from, from today, and how visceral it is, but on a on a psychological or a paranormal level, I think it evolves and it it does come in waves. Um horror always seems to find its way back to its roots eventually, and really sticking with the tropes that that really really work where it's it is the fear of the unknown the fear of the dark and the fear of of what's what's around the corner are always just these these tactics that can we can always kind of go back to and rely on
3: and you mentioned earlier the idea that a lot of it it goes right back to our childhood and those elements that you just described there you know you can imagine a kid being sort of scared in the dark in the bedroom so is it just really a
10: progression from that I believe so. It is remembering back in your childhood of of waking up in the middle of the night and seeing that shadow across your wall and did it move? When in fact it didn't, but your eyes play tricks on you and your, your mind takes it to a place far beyond what it actually is. And that's something we play into during Halloween Horror Nights. We, we want to surround you in these environments that, that make you believe something horrific is happening or that something could horrific happen to you when in fact it's completely controlled, completely safe, um, but, but is able to place you in an environment that you would never typically find yourself in.
3: So dare I ask what happens on these nights or is it going to give me nightmares?
10: <laughs> well, Halloween Horror Nights, it's a 30 night event and we have uh, what we call haunted mazes where we surround the guests uh, in their favorite horror brands. But at the same time, we do present a lot of new ideas and characters that our guests have never seen before. Uh, but, but we really want to bring to life a lot of well-known brands that, that people know and love, like The Walking Dead or uh, The Exorcist, as I mentioned before. But it really is that the entire goal of the event is to not only present a really unique and fun Halloween party, but from the moment you step through the door, you are immersed and within a living horror film. That is what we want our guests to experience.
3: Gosh, I think I really would get nightmares. It's interesting how some of us are able to go into experiences, whether it's movies or whether it's uh, like you're talking about here, these sort of really involved um, games as such. And then also you've got theme park rides as well. Some people can just go and do these things and then walk away and leave them and laugh about them. And other people, and I would probably class myself in this, just can't let it go. It just sort of stays with you sometimes, doesn't it?
10: absolutely well and there's also a, there's a sense of accomplishment for for people like yourself that are really apprehensive about doing an experience like this but end up you know finding the courage to actually go through with it the satisfaction on the other side of that experience is immeasurable there is this there's this elation an adrenaline rush that that you were able to accomplish it and actually make it through uh, i find more often than not uh, most of our guests that experience the event would not consider themselves horror fans Fans, but are a fan of the adrenaline rush that it provides.
3: And speaking of adrenaline rushes, when we look at the parks themselves, the Universal Parks, you've got those massive theme rides and some of those are based on, you know, sort of slightly scary films. How do you actually translate those scares and fears into a, into a ride?
10: Well, a, a ride or, or a haunted maze, it essentially is about what, what story do we want to tell based on what we're given. Um, you look at, at, a, at a maze like The Walking Dead. Obviously, that show is about the survivors of a zombie apocalypse. For our guests, we want to place our guests into that role. They are the survivors and they are then surrounded by the insurmountable odds of having to fend off this zombie horde. And that is what our guests experience when they walk through that maze. Uh, The environments and and the feeling as if they are one surrounded by thousands of walkers, The, the perception of that, you know.
3: And it's interesting you keep mentioning story, actually, because having a little bit of background in film as well, I would always say that unless you have a good story... The odd jump here and there and the odd bit of gore just isn't really going to make it for anyone, is it?
10: No, you're absolutely right. That The story is the number one goal uh, when we begin the creative process for any attraction at Universal. We want our guests to feel like they have a beginning, middle and end. An acts one, two and three. Just as if it was a, a two hour theatrical play versus a three to four minute theme park attraction. It is all about the the characters and the emotional value we want you to leave with once you're done.
3: Well, I'm almost convinced, but I think I need someone to hold my hand.
10: <laughs> well, if, if you come out, uh, give me a call. I'll be right there.
3: Oh, you superstar. So if any of us would like to go along to one of these things, where can we find out more?
10: All the information can be found at UniversalOrlando.co.uk.
3: So you just got to jump on a plane first. That's right. <laughs> Get over that phobia first and we'll be fine. <laughs>
2: Women Today, brought to you by Citywing.com, for your next flight away. Don't sit in the slow lane, join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So, don't be left behind, get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.